Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? We've talked about the challenge of rising carbon emissions many times over the last several months. There's a reason for that. In the last few days, it's been confirmed that 2020 was one of the hottest years on record. And that's in spite of the unexpected emissions reductions that came with the pandemic. So the question remains how to cut emissions even more. The Earth's vast forests and oceans are finely tuned and efficient natural systems for absorbing carbon dioxide, but they have reached their limits. That's a promotional video from a Vancouver-based company boasting of a technological fix, a way to grab carbon generated by oil and gas exploration, cement making, and other heavy industry. And there are companies around the world promising a new efficient way to cut carbon while allowing all that industry to thrive. But critics point to problems. Most of the carbon scooped up by machinery so far has been used by the fossil fuel industry to extract yet more oil and gas. What's more, they say carbon capture enterprises won't be able to make a big dent in emissions for many years to come. Undeterred, both the private sector and government are pushing forward, promising an affordable way to scrub carbon from the atmosphere, helping to improve both the environment and their reputations. A powerful incentive for industry to join Mother Nature as an ally in the fight against climate change. We hear a lot about carbon capture from industry, and it's even embedded in the federal government's climate plan unveiled just a few weeks ago. But that catchphrase, carbon capture, actually covers a lot of activities. And who better to explain it to us than our own producer, Molly Siegel? She's been digging into this, and she joins me now. Hi, Molly. Are you ready for the challenge? You bet, Laura. Okay, up to you. Let's start with the basics. What is carbon capture and storage? It's actually a few things. Sometimes people lump in things like oceans and trees, as we just heard. But today, we're going to specifically look at the purely tech side. All right, no nature then. But, but even when it comes to tech solutions, is it all the same? Nope. That's the short answer. Uh, but of course, um, it's more complicated. It always is on this show, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, but I'm going to try to parse it out for you here. Um, very broadly speaking, we can think of it as two kinds of technologies that people are talking about as carbon capture. There's one that's usually labeled point source capture, and the other one is often called direct air capture. Let's start with that one. The idea is you suck the air in and filter out the carbon dioxide. Okay, that sounds easy enough. Mm, yeah, sorry, not so fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so this is a, a huge simplification. Now, I mentioned the idea of a filter. We filter stuff out all the time. Air filters, furnace filters, water filtration. I mean, you get the idea. So there are a few ways you can do this with CO2. But one of the filters is something scientists call a swing substance. 
for example, it could be designed to attract CO2 when it's hot, then release CO2 when the substance is cool. It essentially swings from one state to another to filter out the carbon dioxide. Okay, Molly, this is starting to sound like a chemistry lesson, and I have to admit, I was never great at chemistry. Well, I'm sorry, but the rest is really technical. Simply put, think of direct air capture as filtering the carbon dioxide out of the air. All right, I like simply put. So that's direct air. Now, you mentioned a second kind of carbon capture. Right. That's point source capture. All right. If, if the first option actually sucks the carbon dioxide straight out of the air, then I am guessing that that jargony phrase, point source capture, actually translates as getting... CO2 right at the source? Exactly. Point source capture is technology that's supposed to grab the CO2 at the smokestack itself. So the pollution that's coming out of a cement plant or a steel plant or even a power plant, um, anything from coal fired to biomass fired, the pollution is partly CO2 emissions and the technology allows plants to grab the smoke and isolate CO2. Okay, but then do they store the carbon? In some cases, yes, but usually not exactly. A lot of it is used to extract more oil and gas from underground. It's called enhanced oil recovery. It's not new. Oil and gas companies often use carbon dioxide from underground, take it out, pipe it in somewhere else to get more oil out. But now the idea is you could buy captured carbon from another company and use it in that same way. Now, this is a little bit of a, a fraught topic, and I'll be back in just a few minutes to get into this a bit more, along with some of the other concerns and critiques. Okay, Molly, we will come back to you in a few minutes. Thanks for this. Thanks, Laura. In order for countries like Canada to meet their Paris commitments, many think in addition to cutting emissions from cars, homes and industry right now, a massive amount of carbon would also need to be removed straight from the atmosphere. Michael Bernstein is one of those people. He's the executive director of Clean Prosperity. Hello. Hi, good to be with you. What role do you think capturing carbon emissions at their source plays in Canada's effort to decarbonize? I think it plays a critical role, um, not only in helping us reduce our emissions, but doing it in a way that's good for our economy and helps our industry uh, continue to grow. Um, I would expect that uh, carbon capture and storage um, will play, uh, we will probably need to use it for something on the order of 10 to maybe even 20% of the hardest emissions to tackle. And, and how much of that is actually happening in Canada at the moment? So far, we've had a, a start, but really we have just a handful of projects. In fact, we have really four major projects happening in Canada, but we certainly need something like a, a 10x growth in our use of this technology if we're going to leverage it the way that uh, myself and many other experts believe we will need to on the road to net zero emissions. Right, and I want to get into all of that. But before that, so that we, we just talked about capturing carbon emissions at their source, but there is this other kind where you capture carbon just from the air. Um, right. We know there's at least a demonstration project, but is there any indication that that is growing in popularity and use? I think there's very strong indication that this will be a important part 
of the future effort to reduce emissions. There are a number of companies and a number of different kinds of technology that are being adopted at the same time. And so um, while I'm, I'm hopeful and expect that that project will be successful, um, there are a number of horses in this race. All right. But, but, but we know that right now we do have industry capturing carbon. For example, it's something like a, a coal-fired power plant. What is that captured carbon currently being used for in Canada? Yeah, there's two primary uses of that carbon. The one that is the easiest to to discuss probably is is the use of just burying it right back underground, where it should be permanently stored deep in the subsurface. The second use is that it is used to pump into oil fields to help extract oil and bring it back up to the surface. That's called enhanced oil recovery. And uh, today in Canada, you have a split. I, I guess really three of the four projects are using this enhanced oil recovery. And one of the four projects is burying the, uh, the carbon permanently underground. But this enhanced oil recovery, it actually isn't new. It's been used by oil and gas for a long time so That's that right. the companies could get the most oil out of the ground. But now we're, we're facing this idea that those companies could receive a federal benefit for it. Is that a good thing? You know, I think people will take different views on that. I think that um, ultimately it is true that enhanced oil recovery has been a key part of growing this market in its early stages, but it doesn't need to be part of the, the future of this technology. It, it, the technology itself is simply about capturing the carbon that otherwise would have gone into the atmosphere. The carbon could be buried permanently underground, it could be injected into concrete or other uses, or it could be used, as we're talking about, for this enhanced oil recovery. Okay, I just want to be clear, though. Do, do you think, then, that the, these oil and gas companies should be getting a benefit for doing what they've been doing for years? I'm, I'm fairly agnostic to that in the short term. I think that probably the ideal design of the policy is to reward and prefer projects that are permanently storing the carbon underground. Um, I'm simply saying that the enhanced oil recovery projects if they help us reduce the cost of that technology and use it more widely over time, um, that may be uh, you know, that, that may be more appropriate than you might at first think because it's, it's bringing more oil to the surface. Canada plans to increase the price on carbon and it's considering new rules around fuel and its carbon content called the Clean Fuel Standard. How could those two policies affect what is or isn't happening with carbon capture in Canada right now? Both those policies are critical to helping give companies the incentive to invest in the technology. The carbon price that was announced, which is expected to get to $170 a ton by 2030, will exceed the cost of carbon capture and storage. So if I'm a cement plant or if I'm a, an oil refinery, I will have a choice between do I want to pay $170 a ton for the carbon that I'm going to emit, or does it make sense for me to pay, for example, $100 a ton, a smaller amount, to invest in a, a carbon capture and storage technology that I could retrofit in my facility? And so I think for that reason, you're going to see a policy like carbon pricing really increase the use of carbon capture and storage. I thank you very much for your insight. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, happy to do it and happy to talk to you. Michael Bernstein is the executive director of Clean Prosperity.
As promised, Molly Siegel is back again to talk more about the concerns and the critiques around this technology. Hello again. Hi, Laura. You mentioned there are a number of concerns. So where are we starting with this? Well, we know that we have too much CO2 in the air, even if we stopped polluting today. With that in mind, you kind of have to wonder if these two types of carbon capture help get rid of some of that excess. June Sakara has been looking into that, whether these can be effective. She works in public policy and she's affiliated with Boston University and the New School in New York. She and a colleague actually reviewed 200 papers on this topic. It's sort of a shell game that gets played, a carbon accounting shell game that gets played to make the argument that this is a climate mitigation technique. A shell game, that is a pretty bold statement. Right? Um, She does not mince words here. Sakara's point, though, is that the math doesn't quite add up. They reviewed all of those papers, and they found that when you trap carbon at the source, in theory, it only prevents additional emissions. And that's kind of the best it can do. But she says it doesn't really even do that in reality all the time, because the very process of grabbing and filtering out carbon also takes energy. And if the industrial plant is using fossil fuels, you need to factor that into the equation, right? Okay, I think I see where you're going with this. People need to be careful about whether or not the technology is actually capturing more carbon than it's using to (laughs) capture carbon. Yes, exactly. You kind of have to zoom out and see the whole picture. And there's another point in that, too. And it's what happens to the carbon dioxide that's captured. Right, because we've heard it isn't always stored, is it? Exactly. You got it. Most of it is used to extract more oil and gas, as I said earlier. And there's research that shows, on average, more carbon is emitted than stored overall. So part of Sakara's concern is that if policies encourage this kind of carbon capture, it doesn't help us get off fossil fuels. And she says people are maybe getting the wrong idea. To the extent that people have heard about carbon capture, they have this sort of warm and fuzzy idea that, oh, gee, this can be you know, something good to save us. And that's because they have this impression that we can have, you know, carbon neutral fossil fuels. That's great. You know, we can just burn it and capture it so we can keep on using fossil fuels. And that's false. Okay, but what about the other kind of technology that we talked about? And that is the direct air capture. Yes, good memory. But the question is, do you remember the chemistry of it? I'm just kidding. Oh, thanks, Um, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Teasing aside, as you know about this technology, it's only at the demonstration stage. So it's not at the scale we would need it. But looking beyond that, it also takes a massive amount of energy. So if you're using fossil fuels, again, to power this direct air capture, in the end, the process emits more than it captures. So for it to stand a chance, it requires renewable energy, way, way more than we're producing right now. But the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change actually says that this technology is needed to meet our goals. Isn't that right? I know, right? And I really wondered that too. The IPCC outlines a handful of different ways things could go in the next eight decades. And you're right. Most of those scenarios include things like direct air capture technology well beyond 2050. Wim Carton looked at that closely. He studies the politics and economics of climate change solutions, and he teaches at Lund University in Sweden. He's concerned by some of the assumptions the IPCC makes. The models all assume economic growth, and and so that means that um, future generations are supposed to be in a better position to pay this. And I would say the assumption that, you know, we will have something like 2% economic growth um, 
continuously also makes it necessary. So his point here is that the IPCC doesn't even consider what happens if we stop growing our economy or if we stop using fossil fuels way more quickly. And he says if we don't act now to get off fossil fuels, we will need to capture that much more carbon dioxide in the future. Another one of those notorious feedback loops. Yeah, kind of, right? Emit more now and you have way more to clean up. Uh, The economy may not grow at that 2% rate. We're already seeing floods, hurricanes, wildfires happen more frequently. They happen with greater intensity. And those things cost money, right? But more importantly, they cost lives. Wim Carton says the IPCC doesn't take any of that into account or things like future environmental damage. And he says that's a problem for the generations that come after us. Looking at this as a problem that we can still solve by having a high carbon tax, for example, and let the market prioritize different technologies, I think is downplaying um, the urgency of what we what we have in our hands here, what what the problem is. I, I think there's very good reasons to accept that, you know, a climate change solution that is trying to minimize risks of, you know, tipping points, etc., will probably need to cost something. Okay, but people like Michael Bernstein and even our own federal government say in the meantime, we can and should be doing both. And I'm wondering whether you now think that argument holds up. It depends who you ask, because what part of this really comes down to is where to spend this money and when we should spend it. Dale Marshall is the National Program Manager for Environmental Defense, and he's pretty clear about what he thinks should happen instead of carbon capture. Government should not be putting its money and its attention and its policies in that direction because that is delay. Government should be looking at the technologies that we can be implementing right now and are implementing in many parts of the world already and even parts of Canada already. We have renewable energy technology, storage technology, electric vehicles. Those are the things we need to be pushing out in terms of our priorities for government. When government puts more attention into giving another lifeline to the oil and gas industry, it's sunk costs. It's handing over money to an industry that should be phased out and will be phased out instead of investing in the things, paying attention to the technologies and the policies that we know work and that are working in many parts of the world. And that, Molly, is a sentiment that we have heard before on this program, and it just goes to show that this debate is probably going to continue for some time to come. Thank you for all of this. Thank you, Laura. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
There are some environmental groups that support carbon capture as a viable way to reduce emissions while still allowing heavy industry to thrive. Bologna is based in Norway, where it champions new projects aimed at trapping carbon at its source, transporting it, and storing it underneath the seabed. Hi, my name is Keith Worski. I'm the Deputy Director of Bologna Europa, and I've spent the last 10 years trying to get carbon capture and storage deployed on industry. Well, okay, with that in mind then, can you tell us about the Longship Project in Norway? So the Longship Project in Norway is a project that we've been working on for a very long time. So one of the big point sources, one of the big emitters in Norway is a cement plant. So all countries use cement. We use them for building roads and dams and buildings. But cement emits a lot of CO2. And cement is very strange because you can't just swap out fossil fuels and say the cement is now clean because the CO2 is actually coming from the, the chemistry in the production of the cement itself. So in Norway, they had two options. They could either uh, get rid of their cement production and rely on imports and say they've exported their CO2 emissions or do something about the problem. So capturing and storing CO2 from the cement plant was what was chosen to drastically reduce the emissions from that. And this is the first time in the world that we'll be producing normal Portland cement in a low carbon way. So this is really using CCS where it belongs in industry with really hard emissions and the really hard CO2 to reduce. Give me some idea of how it would actually work. So capturing CO2 is a very basic technology in ways. It's kind of imagine a relatively large chemical plant that selectively grabs the CO2 after it's coming out of the cement plant and it separates it from the other, other gaseous chemicals. So you end up with a pure stream of CO2. Then you can condense the CO2 into a liquid form so it can be transported by ship. Uh, using ships to transport the CO2 is, is very useful, actually, because it means that you can come up with a network of ships that can go to many different industry points. And then in the Longship Project, the CO2 will be brought to an area off the coast of Norway, and it will be injected deep underground. And in almost the same way that we extract oil and gas, we now turn that technology upside down and use it for our benefit to store CO2 back where it came from, back deep underground where it will remain permanently. Right. And the, the thing you point out there about Norway is even though it, is, it has gone a long way toward cutting emissions, it still is a, a, an exporter of fossil fuels, which is something to always remember about Norway. And you're saying since they pull uh, fossil fuels out of the seabed, now they're pumping something, the CO2, back into it. But I'm just wondering, what are the risks of doing that? So when we go and we, we explore a site to store CO2, we have spent many, many years making sure that that site is suitable for CO2 storage. So the Longship Project, there's more than five years of study went into finding that one site to make sure that the CO2 could be injected there and will be stored permanently there. And without getting too scientific, what makes it qualify as a good place for storage? So basically you need to find an area where it has a trapping mechanism. So when you inject it, you, you displace some of the existing salt water in the area and the CO2 gets in place then. Over time then the CO2 becomes more and more immobilized and sinks down and becomes a normal part of the geology of that region. It's very common for people exploring for oil and gas to actually hit a well that is full of CO2 and not oil and gas. So we're trying to replicate those natural mechanisms. But there are some other concerns I wanted to, to talk to you about. One of them is the, is the sheer amount of energy that is needed to grab the carbon from a smokestack, and it can emit as much or more carbon as it's intended to capture, meaning that there might be no advantage, there's zero benefit, or it might even make things worse. What do you say to that? Oh, golly. If, if, well, if, if, if that was something that I was aware of, then they wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't be spending my time on CCS. So you wouldn't propose projects that would have such a, a horrible, what they call a life cycle assessment. Uh, you would make sure that you include all of the emissions from the construction and the operation, and you would make sure that you're making a significant contribution. So it is possible to run a CCS plant, such as on a cement factory, where you capture and store 90% of the emissions. And this is what you need to be going for. And as I mentioned, we're already talking about projects where we remove CO2 from the atmosphere. 
atmosphere while we're still pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. So we need these technologies to work and we need to make sure that we account every drop of CO2 to make sure we're actually really getting the result we need. Now, I want to ask you about the use of of captured carbon to extract more fossil fuels here in Canada and around the world. And and there's a label for that. It's called enhanced oil recovery, using captured carbon, putting it back in the ground and using it to extract more fossil fuels. A report released just a few days ago in Scotland said the vast majority of carbon captured globally to date has been used to extract more oil, and the number is 81%. So I'm wondering whether it really is the right pathway to reducing and eliminating fossil fuels. So I would just say that that's not carbon capture and storage and certainly not operated for the environmental benefit. That's uh, oil and gas business 101. So they extract carbon from the ground, that's what they do, and they're using that to extract more carbon from the ground. If you wanted to do CCS for the climate's benefit, you wouldn't use it to extract carbon from the ground. You make sure that CO2 is stored and stored permanently. From a climate point of view, it's got nothing to do with the environmental prudence at all. It's just the oil business using CO2 as a lubricant to get more oil. So they're giving carbon capture and storage a bad name? Well, yes, I guess. Uh, I, I don't refer to those projects as carbon capture and storage, at least not from an environmental point of view, even though some of the technologies are relatively similar. But if we're doing carbon capture and storage, it's one of those technologies that only exists for one reason, and that's to prevent CO2 from going into the atmosphere. At the moment, in most countries, dumping CO2 to the atmosphere is entirely free, if not very, very cheap. So we need to have more of a demand on people not doing that. We need to regulate people that dumping CO2 in the atmosphere is seen as something that is improper to do and expensive to do. Very interesting to talk to you, Keith. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. It's been a delight. Keith Wariski is with Bologna, an organization aimed at fighting against climate change in Norway and the rest of Europe. There are many visions of how to use technology to remove some of the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Carbon 180 is an American nonprofit focusing on carbon removal. Suchi Taladi is a senior policy advisor. Direct air capture exists to address climate change, and that in itself functions as a public service. There's no other reason to take emissions out of the atmosphere and store them underground if it's not a public service. Um, And so the role that I see it playing for the public is exactly that, um, is to address legacy emissions, to limit harm to vulnerable communities, um, and to really just kind of change the way that we think about climate change if we're able to use this technology at scale. When it comes to profit, the public should profit. The public should benefit from from this technology. In my ideal future, none of this carbon would be going towards enhanced oil recovery. It would be it would be stored underground, and that's really how you benefit from that capture of carbon is when you permanently lock it away, whether it's underground or in materials like concrete. I think using it for enhanced oil recovery is not a way that the public can profit from those actions. The the picture that I'm painting and what I want to see requires a lot of social transformation. It requires massive investment in renewables, far more than we're seeing. It requires, you know, a much more efficient and functional electric grid. It requires national dedication to climate change in a way that we haven't seen before. And just incredible amounts of investment in infrastructure. And that does it for us this week. If you missed any of the show, just head to CBC Listen. You can listen on demand or subscribe to our podcast. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. 
I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.